think that self-awareness is built as a result of the feedback that you give and receive. I think self-awareness is not developed in a vacuum. Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast featuring conversations with the most accomplished, admired, and amazing female revenue leaders throughout B2B tech. Taking the Lead is hosted by Christina Brady, a sales leader, lifelong learner, and president of Sales Assembly. This show is brought to you by Sales Assembly, the industry's first and only scale-as-a-service platform that helps high-growth tech companies scale better, scale faster, and scale smarter. Visit salesassembly.com to learn more. And now, let's jump into the conversation. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Taking the Lead. I am Christina Brady, and before I introduce you to our incredible, incredible guest today, I am so excited to talk to her, but I have to give a shout out to some other incredible companies who help us do what we do. I'm talking about our sponsors, so Showpad, Vidyard, and Motion. If you don't know Showpad, they are the best thing to ever happen to your sales team. With their product, you can enable your team to win with the content and training that they need to drive more meaningful customer conversations. Visit showpad.com if you want to learn more. And also Vidyard. It is the video platform that is built for business. If you or your sales teams or your support teams are looking to connect with people on a more personalized basis, especially in the scope of this new normal, you have to check out Vidyard. You can create personalized video experiences track their performance analytics, and even integrate video data into your CRM for follow-up. Come on now, let's get on top of that. And lastly, we could not run this entire podcast without our friends at Motion. They are a podcasting service for scrappy marketing teams in the B2B tech space. They launch podcasts like ours. They are fueling this and supporting this, and they even create the audio, video, and written content out of each episode. You can find them at motionagency.io. Now with that today, our guest is Rokita Williams. Rokita, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I cannot wait to hear you talk about your professional journey. Right now, you are a keynote speaker and advocate for diversity, equity, and inclusion in sales at Habits for Work, an incredible company. And I know you do a lot of fantastic speaking work. Spanning from early on in February 2019, you were a TEDx speaker You're on the board of commissioners of the Memphis Area Transit Authority. You worked at CN for 13 years and also as an assistant vice president of sales at Patriot Rail Company for the last four months. Do you have more time than the rest of us? How are you doing all of this? I do not have more time. I wish I did. It is definitely about living and working intentionally. And two, I've always believed in sort of integrating my, my life and work. So I don't really compartmentalize myself. I show up as myself all day, every day. And work is one of the ways I express myself. I started my career in sales by happenstance. Uh, I just got out of university. 25 years ago, I'm dating myself. And um, UPS hired me as a supervisor in a call center. And that, over a course of 10 years, it went from that to being able to manage as many as 300 sellers unlocking tremendous value for UPS customers. And then 13 years ago, I was recruited by the railroad, and that opened up an entirely different span of opportunities and sales as a direct seller, as the business development person, as a public affairs liaison, and certainly as a sales leader. And so it has been a dynamic ride. This year, I had the great opportunity to work with the Habits at Work team. It was the first time 
I'd ever run into a consulting company, a consulting organization that wanted to change how sellers operate and, and to do that in a way that was research back, backed by research and science and rooted in real practical ways to do that by way of habits. But most importantly, I think they caught my heart when I saw that they were truly bringing DEI to life in sales effectiveness. And that's the piece that said, this is something that I want to be on board with. And this is something I want to help other sales leaders to have that mindset shift from performance management to habit activation. Because I spent years myself trapped behind that I need to manage my team's performance instead of helping them to make progress in their lives. And so I have to thank the folks at Habits at Work for really helping me to have that mindset shift for myself coming out of industry as a sales leader. That's incredible. Diving deeper into your journey a little bit, you mentioned that you were recruited by Railroad. How does something like that happen? Good Lord. That's a very interesting question. It happens in two ways. One, it happens if when you're a seller who helps customers truly unlock value and make progress in their businesses, your sellers, your customers sell you. And so that's one of the ways it happens is that one of my customers literally referred me to the railroad that they were doing business with. I was on the UPS side and they had a rail relationship with CN and one of the customers told the recruiter to to give me a call. So that kind of goes to show that some customers, you can be such a model of excellence for them that they look for opportunities for you. And in this case, that's exactly what happened. It's like your village is never what you think it is until you have to lean on it. And then all of a sudden it's this incredible thing. And hearing about the work that you've done at Habits at Work and even just a little bit of your own mindset of what true leadership is, go one level deeper there when you say it's less about just pushing people to perform and it's it's more about making a larger impact in their life and guiding them as an individual. Can you focus on that for a moment and kind of what the differences are in leadership there? Yeah, so there are some very distinct differences. Andrew Sykes, the president and CEO of Habits at Work, said something to me in one of our first conversations. And he said that his charge is to ennoble the sales profession because he believes that the highest call of a seller is to help customers to make positive impact and and progress in their lives. And I thought, holy smokes, that is not what I consider to be a sales leader. That is not the job I consider for myself, nor is it the job that I consider for the people that I had as my leadership team. And for me, that's, that was a shift because I thought, if all of the 250,000 sellers that are out there just in my industry or what was formerly the logistics industry had leaders who were committed to helping them make progress in their lives, how would it shift and impact their performance? Instead, for my own personal space, I invested a lot of time into understanding practices and strategies for managing performance and closing performance gaps. That meant, did you have the skill, do you have the skills to do the work? Do you have the motivation to do the work? Do you have the tools to do the work? It never occurred to me that we are our habits that the habits that we practice shape our identity. And instead, by focusing on the habits that we activate, then we create space for the performance to follow. We create, in other words, a culture of high performance. So in this very narrow, short-sighted way, 
performance management is transactional. That's what I, today I see that as being very transactional, performance management. I see helping sellers make progress in their lives and helping customers make progress in their lives as being something that truly empowers people. And I think that's the direction most organizations have to shift to if we're really going to have the ultimate impact that we want to have for our customers. We have to first be willing to help our employees make the progress in their lives before we can ask them to help make customers progress in theirs. I just, I have to imagine if everybody took that mindset of making sure that you have a whole happy, passionate, motivated person first and then applying that person to your product. And I loved when you said we are our habits. And speaking of habits, you talked also a lot about high impact skills, high impact habits and how those create this high performance culture and then how that can lead into building a larger, more inclusive culture. So there's a lot of thoughts there, and that's really the topic of our discussion, is how these high-impact skills can actually lead to a better culture overall. And so diving in there, how do you view skills versus habits? Like, we are our habits, but obviously skill plays some role in it. And as a sales leader, you have to lean into that and be able to identify it. Yeah, so skills are those things that we are able to learn to do, and it could also include talents. So a skill, being able to have conversation, dynamic conversation is a skill. Habits, however, are activities and actions that we repeat in order to get better at a skill. So there's a skill over here in this kind of bucket, and the habits are... Listening empathically, for example, is a habit that I activate in order to be better at conversation or to have more creative conversation. So the skill is conversation or to be able to talk. The habit is being able to listen in a way that makes those conversations more impactful. Okay, that distinction is amazing. It almost looks formulaic in my mind. Do you feel like leadership has the ability to impact that? So just in terms of leadership's role, where can leadership lean in to help people develop their skills? Because does leadership help people develop habits? Like where's the leader's job in there? I'm glad you asked that question because I've given it so much thought over the past six months to my own leadership journey and just reflecting on the spaces in which I wish now, knowing what I know about habits and the role habits have in creating culture, where could I have done things differently? What ask should I have made to my own leadership teams so that my group could be more impactful for our customers? And I think the first thing is is that leaders absolutely must recognize the role habits have in shaping culture. And then secondarily, making an investment in revenue generating teams so that they have habit activation. First, the identification of what are the high impact habits? What are those habits that really lend itself to creating high performance culture? And then even a step further, of those habits that create high performance culture, which of those habits help contribute to diversity, equity, and inclusion? So what are those? And then making an investment in working with partners like Habits at Work who've done the work, who understand the science, who have the research, and who understand how to make sure to activate these habits in a way and put together programs in a way such that these skills and habits stick and stay 
as opposed to being quickly forgotten and hardly ever executed. Would you say that these lists of habits, is this something every company has to get in a room with their executive leadership and make their own list based on their own culture? Because usually if you're trying to change your culture, making a list of what you're currently doing doesn't really do that. There has to be change there. Or is there like a master list of these habits that you think every company needs to grab these and emulate them? I think Habits at Work has the master list. So I I do believe that the habits and the research that they've done through the Brat Labs is that represents the top 10 habits that every culture that is new generating has. I think of those habits, there are four, at least for me, that I'm over and over seeing in organizations that if you, for example, invest in teaching people how to listen empathically to deepen connections, you could not only create an environment where you are a trusted advisor to your customer, you could also create an environment where people have a voice and they know they have a voice. And that builds a sense of belonging and inclusion that helps with building representation in in our organizations and sales. We're still in a situation where women make up 50% of the population, but are less than 39% of sales force and and less than 20% of leadership roles. And people of color are less than 15% of roles in sales force. So I believe there are giving and receiving feedback, listening empathically to deepen connections, posing the right questions to surface what matters and telling stories to change minds. Me, those are top of mind habits that if you are not working on activating those in your environment, not only are you not gonna be able to make your revenue goals and meet the budgets that these aggressive budgets that you're setting for your people, you're also going to have a, a organizational culture that is continuing to try to resolve DNI. Right. Every year we hear comes, we're trying to resolve DNI. If you are not activating those habits in your organizational culture, next year you're going, you're going to have the same conversations about we're trying to resolve DNI. What I think is great about a list like this is it's got universal application. So if I think about that list, listen empathetically, create a culture of feedback and coaching, pose the right questions, tell stories to change minds. When I think about those things, I could be talking to a sales rep about how to be a better rep, how to develop the skill of sales, but I could also be talking to the internal team about how to treat your employees and how to treat your peers. And it's the exact same message for both. And I have to imagine that's by design. I'll give you another real world application. When I first started at Habits at Work, naturally I came from an industry that is, well, giving and receiving feedback is not a strength. (laughs) Not a big thing. And so I had, uh, I was sending out an email and this email was one that was written at one o'clock in the morning. So you can imagine it was scatterbrained and poorly written. It is normal culture in the railroad to work 24 hours a day. There is some expectation that some of the communications are going to be scattered because you're working 24 hours a day. So this is a part of the culture. If you don't understand it, just email me back tomorrow. Maybe I'll get it right. So I sent out an email. It was terribly written. And a member of our team set up a one-on-one call with me. And she said, hey, I just want to offer some feedback on this email. It's confusing. And she offered some advice on some stuff. And I was initially very triggered. When I say triggered, I'm like very triggered. I was thinking, I've worked 25 years in this industry. I have all this expertise, I have a master's degree, surely I'm not having a conversation about the context of an email. And I went to bed that night and I thought about it. I said, how would life be different for me at 44 years old if I worked in a culture such that I could ask the VP of sales or another senior member of my team 
to rewrite or clarify a miscommunication. Or if I could just simply give them feedback that they may not be showing up with the, in the same way they intend to. Like, who could I have become if that would have been my experience at 26 or 27 years old? And so I think when you start looking at just the context of giving and receiving feedback, a lot of millennials are feeling like their voice and their experience isn't respected in the workforce today, largely in part by people like me who have gone through so many challenges and difficulties to make it to some senior position that we're, you know, we didn't quite create a lot of room to receive critical feedback. And so I think if you just look at that piece alone, what type of impact that would have on building inclusive culture, if you simply had leaders to do the internal work necessary to create space for every single member of the team to be able to give feedback, to call you out and ferociously demand that you show up as the person that you say you're going to show up as, or to say that the person that you want to get credit for showing up. I want to get credit for being a highly articulate, intelligent person, yet I'm writing an email that doesn't make a lick of sense at one o'clock in the morning. I still expect to get that credit, and I don't want anyone to say anything to me about it. That's not leadership. That's not leadership. And so today I can laugh about it and reflect on it, but I was very miserable at the time because it took some context to work through this. But even just that, when you think about the impact that could have on culture, giving and receiving feedback. And so if we can create culture organizationally, we can give and receive feedback. Think about how much braver and how much more courageous our sellers can be in asking our customers for feedback. And so that has very deep implications when we're talking about building inclusive culture, when we're talking about building representation and making sure that our sales forces are diverse. How do you achieve that if a person, a little black lady can't give candid feedback to senior leadership? Or the reverse, a millennial can't give critical feedback to someone who's been in the industry for 30 years. Like, how do you create inclusive culture? How do you build out representation? Or how do you close the economic gaps? You can't do that. You talk about bravery when it's so intimidating for all parties involved to have a feedback conversation around something like an email. You make a great point that when you're talking about humanity and equity and having to approach some really hard-hitting topics and call out some potential biases or talk about some unrecognized racism within your company. Like, how can you have those conversations if you're afraid to, one, give somebody feedback about an email or if receiving it feels so threatening? And that, of course, comes from your experience, too. Especially women, we are afraid that at any moment the prestige that we've built can be shattered. We're always protecting our prestige and because we work so hard to earn it and then we think we have to work so hard to keep it. So I think about that example and I think about receiving that and then immediately feeling threatened because it's, is, is somebody gonna ding my prestige? Are they gonna take away everything I've worked for because of this one stupid moment? But then the person giving the feedback, that can be terrifying too. Oh, I can't even imagine. I can't, what I can say is I wouldn't have taken I would not <laughs> have been so courageous at that point in my career to do that. And so I, I think we all have a responsibility to look at the way in which our work helps us to do transformational work on ourselves. Because for me, that situation, while it seemed like a small piece of my responsibility, it literally it, it was literally one of those things that was so impactful. Like I went to my therapist. I was like, hold up, we need to unpack this. What Handle is this? <laughs> this is something I need to unpack it. I need to know how it's creating barriers for me 
building deep, lasting relationships? How am I showing up with my armor up, ready to defend my, my, my station in the world? I'm ready to box it out, to fight over that position and station that I have in the world, a station that says, you can only bring feedback to me when it's strategic and critical and at the level that I've deemed appropriate by some impossible standard that I'm not even communicating. Yes. What's, who does that? Who does that? And so I think leaders have an opportunity to be models of excellence around these habits themselves. And that may mean doing work that is not tip, that's not considered leader, customary or traditional leadership work. That may mean like doing some real internal transformational work. You have a high level of self-awareness, even in that story which I think so many people on both sides can find themselves in. That's unbelievably relatable. I'm not surprised to hear you say that telling stories to change minds is one of the core habits you have to have because you're good at it. But the level of self-awareness to even recognize what you are feeling in that moment and then go so far as to have another conversation around to say, there's something going on with me that I need to fix here. Do you think that level of self-awareness of being able to I don't know if it's check yourself, but being able to recognize when something about you is misaligned. Is that a habit as well? Is that something that people need to have? Is that high level of self-awareness? I think that self-awareness is built as a result of the the feedback that you give and receive. I think self-awareness is not developed in a vacuum. I believe that the more open you are to feedback and the more you try to integrate feedback. First, you align it to your goals. What am I trying to do in this world? How does this feedback align to those goals? And the more you do that, the more aware you become of how you're showing up and when there are gaps in the showing up. The other part of it, though, is that it allows you to build professional intimacy. Because the other thing I've been able to have is I've been able to have resources in my work that I could call up someone and say, is this a real blind spot for me? And I don't have to protect myself from sharing those blind spots. I can show up as my whole flawed self and say, is this a blind spot? Is this blind spot going to impede us in in making our goals? And if it is, can you be my accountability partner here? So when you see me being particularly resistant to feedback, can, can you touch me on my shoulder gently and say, hey, Raquita, you're being resistant to feedback. The same is true on the other side. When I'm giving feedback that is unclear, that's not actionable. That's not generous. That's not a gift. When the feedback that I give isn't a gift, can you tap me on my shoulder, Raquita? I need to hold you accountable to this. The feedback that you're giving is not a gift. And that we'd be able to do that on both sides. But I think the key that we have to acknowledge is that when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think that is simply an opportunity for us to do some of the personal and organizational work that has to be done for everyone to feel valued in their work and to feel like their talents and their skills and their habits are valued and that what they show up and what they bring to the table does in fact help people to make progress in their lives and have a positive contribution. I think employees are looking to work with organizations that are gonna help them to transform and customers are looking to work with companies that are going to help them to transform. And just like medicine, we're practicing at it all. And these habits are, have to be a part of that practice. And if they're not, then we're going to continue to talk about how we're trying to resolve DEI or we're trying to resolve morale or we're trying to resolve 
making our revenue goals and we're going to keep trying. And that's all we'll ever be able to do is to try. I want to dig in even deeper there because a big part of this is it's all leading to employee happiness, individual happiness and fulfillment, company success. But ultimately, none of those things can happen if you don't keep diversity, equity and inclusion in mind. Because you're always leaving, you're leaving somebody and something out. And so you can't be a whole thing if you have a gap. And yet so many companies, to your point, it's we've tried, there wasn't the right amount of talent there. We didn't get any candidates. We're having a hard time hiring. Nobody's accepting our offers. Whatever the excuses are for why you're not making meaningful change there, there's obviously some, call it habits or skills that people are really getting wrong. And you probably see that a lot. So what are the pitfalls to avoid here? The biggest pitfall is the idea that change management is that organizational change is organizational change. Organizational change is individual change. For companies to change, the people within the companies must change. And if you're not starting in that space, then there's a problem. I think one of the other pitfalls is that the fact that it's the right thing to do or a good idea is enough. We've done the research, this is the right thing to do, it's a good thing, we know it's gonna be profitable or we know it, you know the way you're supposed to do things that is sufficient, now go ahead and change. It's not enough. People need to understand how the change impacts them. And we often do not speak of change in, this, in, it, in the way in which it impacts others. We often speak of change in the way in which we're defending or validating or justifying our positions. And I think that's the other part of it. So the last thing you said is you were like, they are defending their positions, like we defend our positions. Okay. So I think not only do we look at it from the space of defending our position and justifying it, we completely ignore how that position impacts our people. And so I think we have to, from a change management perspective, we have to recognize that because it's a good idea, that's not enough, and that we need to speak directly to how change impacts people. And I think in some respects, DEI has been challenged in that space because we don't speak to how it impacts people or how we're going to arm them with the habits and skills they need to cope with it. Okay, something's about to change. You want me to do all the work to adapt to the change and I don't get any support or help with it? And so I think that's where it ties back to those habits is, okay, yes, things are going to change. But by posing the right questions or by working on how you tell stories to change minds, you position yourself such that the impact of this change is not a negative one, right? The impact of this change is that you're making progress in your own life and you're helping others to make progress in theirs. Yes. And this other idea of not enough, because I think at least today, an inclusive culture means one that is constantly challenging what the norm is and asking, is it enough? And I can't imagine a world, even the next decade, where we say, yes, Like we're going to find ourselves and we should find ourselves making efforts here and knowing that they're not enough because we haven't achieved equity. Like until we achieve it, it's not enough, but keep going. And in your experience, have you seen companies where they, they make certain moves, like they'll hire a DE&I officer, or they'll bring in some sensitivity training or an unconscious biasy training. And then they say, okay, we've done that. And that's our mission. And that's going to fix things. And it's not enough. And what do you do when you're working at that company and you realize they're not doing enough? Yeah. So that's about is, is it's the similarity is that I want my nine-year-old to have better 
hygiene, oral hygiene. I want him to brush his teeth and I want him to eat well. But what I'm going to do is I will start on Monday at 7 a.m. when it's time for him to get ready to school. I'm going to stand beside him in the, in the mirror. I'll brush my teeth for three minutes and I'll hand him his toothbrush and say, now it's your turn, buddy. It's all on you. And that's it. And I have every expectation that that one session for three minutes and demonstrating how to brush my teeth is sufficient for him to have a lifelong relationship with healthy teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I have a three-year-old and I'm laughing, thinking about. <laughs> That's insufficient. Oh, it's insufficient. <laughs> it's years of, so you want to actually brush it with the bristles or you, you don't want to eat the toothpaste. And it's, it's years of that for Here's something as small as that. Here's one thing Here's you did feedback. well in brushing your teeth today. Here's something we can do differently next time. and then do that for years but as much as we laugh because kids are wild something again that small takes that amount of repetition and intention imagine something this large that feels somewhat insurmountable and something that feels like it is sitting and resting in the hands of the people who the change is for to make the change happen like we bring in the DE&I officer and there's a lot of companies I talk to and the only person of color at their company is that DEI officer. And they're like, yeah. we did it. We've done it. You're like, you, you have not. You're far from it. And I think that's one of those things where companies, there are professionals, there are companies, just like Habits at Work, that have put 20 or so years into the research and understanding of what it takes to turn a skill, a habit, into something that has a high impact on performance. I think that's when the organization says, hey, in this space, I need to hire an expert. I need to hire someone who has done the work, who understands how to activate habits. And that's that's the investment I make into my culture. And that's the investment I make into my people. That's investment I make into my stakeholders and my shareholders who I promise that we're gonna be a profitable organization. And so I think that's what has to happen is you recognize those things that you can handle in-house. And when it comes to creating high performance culture, you may have to go outside of in-house to hire experts who know how to do this work and can do that effectively. Yeah. The picture that you've painted today, starting with just talking about something that every human can connect to, which is what are my skills versus my habits? And as a company, what habits do we need to embrace, not only with how we treat our customers, but with how we treat our employees? And if we do those things properly, we can actually pave the way to a truly inclusive culture where people feel like they belong here. And then maybe, just maybe, other companies will look at what we're doing and they'll do the same thing too. And it all starts with kind of some of these smaller ideas that you presented and it becomes this big thing, but then it, it makes change not seem so scary. It makes it seem like, to your point, it's just one person doing the right thing at a time and other people saying, oh, look what they're doing. I'm going to do that too. It is. It's all of us answering the highest call, which is to make progress in our lives and to help other people do the same. That was beautiful. I feel like I want to get a t-shirt with that on and just be like, this is what we're here for. Never forget that. And with that, I feel like I, I want to get to know you more. And I imagine that our listeners want to get to know you more as well. And so we have gotten down to our rapid reveal section. And our rapid reveal is I'm going to ask you five questions. You've got about 60 seconds tops to answer each one, which I know can be tough because some of these are pretty okay. deep. And if you're on board, we're going to get going. 
All right, let's roll. Well, let's do it. Okay, first, what is your earliest childhood memory? <laughs> I remember going to the fair with my grandfather, and he won a fish, a goldfish for me. And before we walked away, it was you had to throw like little little cotton balls in the fish bowls, and he won a goldfish for me. But I started to negotiate with the vendor. Instead of having <laughs> one fish, I wanted four. And my argument was that one of the fish could die and then the dog could eat the second fish. And I had some argument for the third fish. And then so I walked away instead of with one fish with four fish to ensure that I was able to ultimately keep one fish because the other ones were bound to die by some form <laughs> of accident. <laughs> I am I am trying to hold back my laughter because I remember a similar incidence where we came home with goldfish from a fair as a child. And my mom was just like, what? And we're like, we won fish. And my mom's like, I guess we have fish now. And one of those goldfish lived for eight years. I kid you what? not. Eight years. We had this one, like time. all of them. Yeah. They all died like within a week, like they were all sickly <laughs> and they all died. But this one goldfish, eight years, this fish. Yeah, I was anticipating. Mom, I was a four-year-old who, who anticipated horrors. And I was like, look <laughs> here, I'm mitigating the risk of my heartbreak right now. See, you were born with it. That's amazing. I, was born with it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. This is one that I ask everybody. Maybe I'll write a book one day. Who knows? But what is an irrational fear of yours? That my teeth will fall out. That my I have this reoccurring, really bad dream that I, where oh. my te my permanent teeth have fallen out, and I can't get to the dentist to get them replaced. And it's always one of my first, the top four teeth, and it's just oh. irrational. But it, for ser seriously, I have this dream at least once a month that my teeth have fallen out. I feel like there's some sort of dream psychology about teeth specifically, <laughs> but I just got a shiver down my spine thinking about that. That's a good one. This one could be a little bit tougher, but what's a controversial opinion of yours? Controversial opinion. I believe that if given the choice between choosing natural talent, innate talent versus grit, I would choose grit for myself and for those people that I work closest with. That's a really good one because I feel like if you asked a group of 10 people, everyone would have a different answer. And most likely it would be around the person with natural talent. I love it. I love it. This is another kind of deep one. But if you could go back in time and correct one mistake, what would it be? One mistake. I would go, especially around year 15 of my career, I would have flipped the switch from focusing on performance to focusing on building strategic business acumen and leadership skills. I don't know that I ever invested time into intentional practice of leadership. As many sales leaders are simply transitioned from being a performer, performing and selling myself to leading other people. And so I think in that first promotion, for sure, I would have flipped that switch from tactical selling, doing that myself with my people, to focusing more on leadership aptitude. Well, everyone who is listening to this, who is years behind where you are now, will now not make that mistake because you told them you've helped the world. And lastly, what's the most unique thing about you? So you mentioned in my introduction that I did a TED talk in 2019. That TED talk was around something that I think is fairly unique, which is in 2016, I became qualified as a conductor. So I can literally operate a freight train. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the coolest ones I've ever heard. I picture you, I don't know why, but I just got an image of you like in an action movie and it's like the train's out of control and you're like, I can help. I'm a conductor. And I just, I don't know. That's where my mind went, but that's an amazing fun fact. 
<laughs> Thank you. Well, I have enjoyed talking to you more than, and I can imagine that some of our listeners want to get to know you or connect to you or learn more about habits at work. So where can people find you and learn about the incredible work that you're doing? Yeah, so absolutely want to invite them to first sign up for the Promise Selling Academy so that they themselves can learn how to activate these habits to be high-performing, magnetic individuals that help customers and colleagues and their families to make amazing progress in their lives and just to do some self, some transformational work. It's a wonderful space to do that with like-minded sellers who are also trying to overcome challenges around how habits shape their identities and being in the constant autopilot mode or unable to achieve the top performance that they like to achieve or never actually practicing intentionally. See, we want to overcome those habits. So that's a way always invite people to connect with me on LinkedIn. And so inbox me if you have questions or you just want to talk more about how habit activation can change your life as a seller. I'd love to have those conversations. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for being an incredible guest on Taking the Lead. And I know that you and I probably will talk again soon. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by Sales Assembly. For more information about membership or our free 60-day trial, visit us at salesassembly.com. And if you like what you just heard, please subscribe to Taking the Lead on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. It really helps people find the show. Thanks for listening.